thank you for tuning into the weekly episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Richard Diaz. Richard is the founder of Diaz Human Performance, the Natural Running Network, and creator of the Natural Running Coaches Certification Program. He has extensive experience in not only VO2 max testing and resting metabolic assessment, but more importantly, how to apply their results to yield performance-based outcomes. Richard published Training the Dark Side, which outlines in detail his groundbreaking approach to endurance training, obstacle course racing, high rocks competition, and of course, running. As you know from listening to this podcast, I try to be open-minded and humble in my views. This approach allows me the opportunity to learn like I did from Richard and have my views challenged on the spot. I do my best to reflect on these moments thoroughly, but I can say that Richard's ideas around anaerobic training and the blurred border between endurance training left me seeing cardiovascular programming in an entirely different light. For nothing less than to see what cardiovascular changes they bring and the athletic application to the sports that I love. Ultimately, that's why I love these conversations so much and why I hang my hat on podcasting. It has the power to change your mind through long-form, open-minded discussion. A quick note, for those that love this podcast, please take 30 seconds to drop a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. These reviews help the show get discovered organically and will continually allow me to bring on amazing guests like Richard. Additionally, if you prefer video, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Richard Diaz. Thank you again so much for taking the time to be here. Uh, as I said before the episode, I've been very excited to talk to you and try to nerd out a little bit and get nitty gritty with the, the science behind running, intake, diagnostics, and kind of everything that you've done uh, throughout your career. So thank you for being here. Sure. My, pro my pleasure. I wanted to start with a, a question really just about running itself, actually. Uh, if we think about it from like a developmental standpoint, it seems that running is something that we all do pretty soon in our life. You learn to crawl, you learn to walk. Eventually, you start to trot, jog, play with friends around the park, whatever it is. Why is it that we, despite being, despite inherently being able to do this as we're developing, a lot of us seem to get it wrong, develop inabilities or mechanical errors as we go through our life? Well, that's the $50,000 question <laughs> because as we start out in life, we inherently uh, elect to do the right things. If you watch children as they play, the way they move, mm -hmm. they're far and away more efficient than we are as adults. And it isn't a function of us just being older and slower or you know, less range of motion, less flexible. They just move better. Right. And uh, if I was to try to uh, add an answer to that question, my go-to answer would be that parents uh, made the mistake of introducing shoes to kids too early. And then the parents are interested in um, all the newfangled toy-style shoes, you know, with the bells on it and the little lights that go off and maybe a little wheel underneath and... You know, all, all this corruption that we're introducing to these kids really does uh, jack up their motor skills very early. And I, w I would um, share with you that once upon a time, uh, I was part of a symposium in Boulder, Colorado, 
which had some very, very impressive people on, in the field of running that were present, and one of them being Zola Budd. And I don't know, you might be too young to remember Zola Budd, but she was an Olympian, and uh, she was um, raised in South Africa, but was born in the UK. And she had said that in, in Africa, the pediatricians tell the parents not to put shoes on their kids for as long as possible. And it was socially acceptable for kids, parents, whomever, to go into, um, you know, stores and theaters and what have you barefoot and nobody, nobody cared. It was just it was socially acceptable. And they have less issue with hips and knees and such for having done so. So um, I, I want to point to shoes as I'm one of the culprits. So excited that you started with that because it was a big point that I wanted to talk about is kind of this late start barefoot revolution, the idea of zero drop shoes, staying barefoot, running barefoot. And I think back to when I was a kid, now as you know, having spent my life as a coach and a trainer, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, you're trying to fit in with your friends. You're, you want to be cool. You want certain shoes. You want the things that your friends have. And then if you look at the construction of the shoes themselves, they put us in a, a mechanically strange position when they elevate our heel like that. And your natural desire as a kid is to just play. You, you, know, you don't really know you have the shoes on or not. And your point about the mechanical patterns, we talk about this in weightlifting all the time. Watch a child on the floor get in and out of a deep squat with zero issue have com perfect thoracic extension to put their arms over their head, whether they're playing with a ball or something like that. And then these life things happen that pull you further and further away from these optimal patterns. How do we, I mean, I guess it's a bigger like societal question, but how do we start to implement change in that area? Well, I, I think clearly the, the first thing you want to do is seek someone out that has an understanding of what it is that you need to change and how you might go about it. I find right. that, that, you know, and this is my day job. I, I do analysis on people's running mechanics. You know, it's a regular thing with me. I've been all over the country doing this, doing clinics and what have, I have a few clinics coming up, as a matter of fact, in the next- National and Florida. Yeah, yeah, well, Florida, yes, exactly. Thank you for, for finding that. Um, but um, I will see people move, show them the way they're moving. And oftentimes they're pretty surprised that their movement patterns were so different than what they thought they were. And so their perception is what's really skewed. And I've, I've learned that it doesn't matter what you know or what you think you're doing. It matters what you're actually doing and that you wrap your head around the truth. And so <laughs> one of the things that I've found very powerful is introducing movement patterns to people while they're running. So for example, I'll set up an iPad in front of them as they're running towards the iPad, but have a camera from their side view. So they can actually see a side view of the way they're moving as they're moving. Wow. And that way they can, they can see very clearly whether they're doing it right or doing it wrong. Because these days I find that most people, it's not a function of not knowing what they're trying to accomplish because there's just so much information out there these days that it's not that difficult to know or at least wrap your head around the logic 
about the changes that you should ought make. Uh, it's just that their perception is skewed. They, they think they're doing the right thing and they're not. I have, as we speak, I have uh, three clients that are on my tickler for a, a, a virtual gait analysis where they sent me videos and, and I will go through and I'll start to explain to them what they're doing wrong, show them what they're doing wrong, and then encourage them to find a way to look at the way they're moving rather than just trust that they're making the changes that they thought they're going to make. So I guess that's a, a good place to transition into what, what are some of these things that you find? Because I feel like, it, you know, running is such an available thing for people to do. It's a very easy way to get in good cardiovascular training, whether you're aiming to lose weight, maintain your heart health, or you're just looking to become more active than you currently are. All you have to do is buy a pair of running shoes. You don't have to necessarily get a, a gym membership. You don't have to buy a bunch of equipment. So it's available to so many people. What are some of the most common things that you find when someone comes to you, be that in a clinic or if, if they're looking to hire you on as a coach, that are kind of baseline things that most people are probably doing while they're running? Well, the, the, the number one enemy in running is overstriding. If you, if, you lead out, if you lead out with your leg ahead of your body, if you lead out with an extended leg so that your, your lower limb is ahead of your knee on ground contact, you're imposing a braking force. And it almost doesn't make a difference whether you're on your mm. forefoot or your heel. If you're braking, then you're, the, the loading pattern that's going into your body is just, it's just random and subject to whatever um, part of your body is going to be aff afflicted. And so right. um, I see this a lot where people are, they're so busy because they've been drinking the Kool-Aid and they've been, you know, they, they wrote red born to run and whatever. Right. And they, they're so busy trying to make sure that their forefoot is their first uh, uh, contact with the earth that they'll push their foot ahead of their body and far enough ahead so they could see it. And so there you go. I did it. I'm, I'm doing it right. Wow, Look, yeah, I can yeah. see my foot's out there in front. I'm hitting my forefoot. But they're putting on a brake every time they take a step. So, and if the leg from contact point with the ground to the ankle, to the knee, to the hip is in extension, then you're, you're going to take that loading pattern right up to, to your hip. Totally. You know, you need to land on a flexed knee. I mean, if, if we could, you could almost shut this down right now. If people right. are looking for a tip from me, I'm just telling you right now, you want to land on a flexed knee. If your knee is flexed, contact point's going to be closer to your body, and you're going to absorb the energy into the musculature rather than into the skeletal system. So if I'm, if I'm just kind of spitting this back to you, so if your legs are further out than your center of gravity upon contact, this idea of a braking force is that this mass is moving in a direction. When the legs extended out in front of you, that initial contact is actually a force acting against you in the opposite direction. Right. So if you take, let's say you take 15 strides, each one of those 15 strides is actually acting to push you back towards where you started. Whereas if you can get your feet underneath the center of gravity, fall forward with the contact points, then each one of those contact points is springing you forward towards whatever well, direction well, you're going. So for starters, you have inertia at your back. Mm -hmm. Rather than opposing inertia with that ground contact that we just spoke of, you're actually letting inertia push you down the road. And the other consideration that nobody talks about that I think is critical, and, and this will stick with you after, after you hang up, 
this is going to be in your head for a long time to come. You want to push your body through space, not pull your body through space. So let's take all those mistakes we're talking yeah. about and add speed to it. So the intensity that you create, for example, a track workout, yeah. if you're pulling your body forward, if you're pulling your body to where your foot is, where it made ground contact, then you're preferentially loading the posterior chain. So Thank this you. is going to get a tug at the hamstring at the origin, which is just below the butt cheek, and or the insertion point, which is just below the knee. So it then it becomes a function of strength to weight ratio. If you're strong enough to take the hit, you might get away with it. But if you're trying to go fast and your body's not equipped to take it, you're going to tear a hamstring. Or you're certainly going to be really, really sore, and you're going to hate doing track workouts. You're not going to want to, when your buddy says, let's go to the track, you're going to say, eh, you know, I did that a couple weeks ago. That didn't go so well. I'm just now getting over it. And because you, now what you're doing is you're adding intensity to the mistakes, and because you're preferentially loading a specific region of your body, you're causing trouble for yourself. And so, um, Do you think it, this originates, uh, let's take kind of this hypothetical person as an example. They, their friend says, hey, let's go do a track workout, add some speed to our training versus just kind of low, like steady state, longer duration running. And for the first time, this person's in a situation where they're trying to go quickly. And conceptually, what makes sense is to make the stride longer, right? To cover more distance, to get further faster. But you're saying that that's actually the most counterintuitive counter thing that you could do. Well, so now it's funny you bring that up because this is another bit of confusion that people have. For their lifetime, if they came up in school and ran cross country or track, their, their idiot coach with the clipboard standing at the side of the track is screaming at you to open your stride. And so you're reaching as far ahead of yourself as you possibly can to cause that to open. Well, I got news. You can open your stride behind you, right? Which is you, that's testament that you got rid of the ground well. And that means there's also payback. So this eccentric energy that you created by elongating your anterior chain as you pushed off has repercussion. So what's going to happen is your knee is going to come back to play. And it's going to come back higher. And incidentally, the higher your knee comes up, the longer your stride will be behind you. And I've seen studies where they're saying a 2% increase in knee carry will create a 16% increase in length, stride wow. length. So you look at some of the great runners in the world, and you look at their hip angle. If you took the apex from their hip to their forward knee to their trailing knee and created a, an angle to measure what degree of angle they create for themselves, you know, most of these great runners have uh, hip angles that are greater than 100 degrees. Where you look at an average recreational runner, uh, and I measure this all the time, I'm, I'm seeing between 50 and 60 degrees range of motion. So they're so getting no no coverage in range. There's zero force on, production. On exit. On exit. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like a glancing blow. Try to imagine somebody punches at you, right. and rather than hitting you square on the nose, they just, you know, just slid past your cheekbone a little bit, and, and it didn't cause any damage. So, wow. stupid analogy, I know, but the point no, of the matter it, is, that makes sense. force production off the ground is what you're looking for, and you don't want to do it by working harder. You want to do it by working efficiently, and the more efficient you are, the greater the stride length you're going to create, and the less cost associated with the work. So you're basically getting paid for free, and it's a difficult concept for a lot of people to grasp. 
And it does yeah. take, you know, look, it's not going to be something that's going to, somebody's taking notes right now, they're going to go out and be able to do this. Totally. Yeah, it's going to, you know, obviously it's going to take some some talent. Somebody's got to be able to stand by them and, and show them specifically what it is they're trying to create and let them feel what it feels like when they actually get to that aha moment, right? right. I and, mean, I'm... I'm kind of unpacking this in my head and I'm, I'm partial to the coaching world. So my hope is that someone would hear that and go, I have no idea how to make that happen. I'm going to go seek out a coach and then, you know, work alongside someone or go do a clinic. Uh, but that is like a mind melting moment for me, if I'm being honest, uh, because it does, it, it does put into words the the concept that I think was present in my head. Like if I think of a sprinter running, or if I think of, uh, fast break on a basketball court, or I think a, a fast break on a soccer pitch, the way that the body angle changes and how the mechanics of the running actually works, not in all cases, but in many cases, it is what you were just saying. But if I think of recreational friends, family, myself at certain times in my life before I started trying to actually think about this kind of stuff, it's quite the opposite. It is. It's the coach on the sideline with the clipboard telling you what they think that you're supposed to do based on really what is what they don't know. Well, they're telling you what they learned. Right. And, they, and they're, bringing to, they're bringing to you the education they gained possibly 30 years prior to them. And then they're using the energy and the knowledge that that person got that he picked up maybe 30 years before that. So, and, and I, I can tell you, and I, I, I almost bite my tongue when I say this because I know it, it's going to irritate some folks, but there's so many people out there that are chasing down what's referred to as the Lydiard method of, of training. Lydiard? Lydiard. Yep. Arthur Lydiard was a famous coach back in the 60s, late 50s. Um, he was famous for, I think, the thing that he said that really got in everybody's head was the broader the base, the higher the peak. Mm -hmm. And he was all about linear, not Lydiard, linear periodization lay down a great big base and progressively work to intensity, which is a complete mistake, by the way. Um, but it's organization. He, he organized work for people, and being organized is better than not being organized. Yes. So it worked well for a lot of people, and to this day still does. But if you really truly understood and looked at the concepts that you're looking at, how your energetics work, all of this comes into, in, in our... I listened to some of the podcasts you did with Blue, and you started talking about nonlinear periodization, which I, I loved hearing you say that. But beyond that, there is how you develop the energy system, which I think a lot of people are completely confused about as well. Right. You know, I, I've been doing diagnostics on athletes for, uh, I want to say, 30 years now. And, uh, I mean, clinical diagnostics, actually putting a mask on somebody, doing a VO2 test on them, I'm talking thousands of athletes over the years. And it, in you, I know you guys talked a little bit about my book. Uh, and in that book, I shared basically what I learned from me rather than what I learned from others. I, I literally went back into my archives and pulled up data from all this work that I'd done over the years and started looking at commonalities and started looking at costs associated with, with output. And then started looking at that relative to age and gender. And uh, I started to find some very, very profound things that nobody really discusses. And, and uh, one of those is the, the absence of developing the anaerobic energy system. 
and the importance of developing the anaerobic energy system. So there, we're talking about a lot of things here, and I kind of dovetailed into That's energy. Okay. We'll sniff through it. We'll, we'll sniff through it. But I like where you're going. The is, is that my life has been, for the past 30 years, not, uh, you know, and I almost take exception to someone calling me a running coach because I don't think that's what I am. Uh, I, I might be better uh, suited to be referred to as a consultant because I work with all fashions of athletes. I've worked with, I mean, I did a clinic recently in Vermont for um, young female gymnasts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're looking at their approach to their, to their work and seeing the corruptions in the way they're moving leading into whatever exercise they were producing. These girls must have been, uh, on average, uh, 10, 11 years old. Yeah. And I, I spent two hours. It was the most fun I had all year. Um, but I, you know, I also did diagnostics on professional hockey players, professional boxers, soccer players, basketball players, getting your 50, uh, 40 time down for football players, um, trying to make it to the Navy SEALs, trying to get into the police department. I've been, I, I look at people like meat on the hoof. You know, what, yeah. what is it that you're trying to get done and what is it that's keeping you from getting there? That's been what I've been doing for the past 30 years. I just happened to find a, a huge audience in lately the obstacle uh, course racing community. and Like Spartans, also, Tough Mudders, stuff like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I coach some of the best in the world. And, uh, you know, I look at the sport and say, well, hello, if you can't run, you can't win. It's that simple. Yeah. I don't care if you're a monkey going over a rig. If you don't have good speed and the capacity to run up a mountain, you're not going to win. Yeah, it's, so, it's funny you say this because, uh, I mean, Blue and I talked about this a bit with the CrossFit community, and, and yeah. I had asked a question about, you know, how many, how how far back are some of these athletes holding themselves by not focusing on running mechanics? And my my dad has uh, just transitioned from doing CrossFit really competitively for the last like five six years in the Masters division to to over fifty deca fit. And he just had a, a DecaFit race this past weekend, and we were analyzing like his results. He basically needed to place 12th to make it to the Nationals, and he got fourth. And yes. we were looking at it, and we are like, dude, you're, the only thing holding you back is you suck at running. He, he's always been bad at running. He, even as a two-time Ironman, his running was horrendous in comparison to the swim and the bike. And so we're talking about it like, wow, this is a low-hanging fruit. If you make a couple adjustments to becoming more efficient in running, become better at managing your anaerobic output, raise the floor of your aerobic output, this could be like, I mean, you could be like gl global podium kind of overnight because you're, you're taking such a small adjustment to this thing. And it, it got me kind of thinking just about sports in general, how much as the athlete Obviously, you should try to find the best and most knowledgeable coach that you can. Resources varying on sports are limited. Some athletes have more access to top-level coaching than others, more diagnostics than others, better facilities. But a lot of times, you eat what you're fed, and you don't have the bandwidth to really question the coach, the theories, the ideas. And so you can get something like the Arthur uh, Lydiard who, like you said, they come by and they, they just organize something for people. That's it. They organize something and you take disorganization and create something that can be consistent and replicatable. That alone, 
becomes an X factor. It changes everything for these people. But where's someone going, wait a second, this is all fine and well, but is this actually optimal yeah. or is it just better than what you were doing before? Yeah. Well, the, you know, the irony of it is, is that um, it's very difficult for a coach, a good coach, to make a living with recreational yeah. athletes because recreational athletes typically can't afford to pay what a good coach deserves to earn. Right. So there's the conundrum. And, and well like, said. <laughs> well, it's the truth. I mean, let's face it. You, you start looking at it and you, you know, I got to make my mortgage. I got to make my car payment. And my coach wants me to pay him a thousand dollars a month. Uh, my wife's going to divorce me. You know, it's like, <laughs> because where, where does it go? I mean, where, if, yeah. let's just say for, well, look, look, I'll give you an example. Uh, I coached and worked with Hunter McIntyre, who was, yep. he is currently the high rocks world champion was at one time the OCR world champion, did go to the to the CrossFit Games on a wild card. Uh, and I worked with him and, you know, he's he's a beast. He's an amazing athlete. He's probably Monster. one of the best earners in the space of, of OCR and high rocks and whatever. And I, to this day, work with him and, you know, have conversation with him on a regular basis. And he's... Frustrated with the fact that and he goes, no matter what I do, I really can't earn enough money to to be a professional in the sport. He goes, yeah. you know, everybody would look at me as a professional and elite athlete, but at the, the truth of the matter is, the the uh, the designation of being professional means that's your day job and it pays all your bills. And, right. And if it and if it doesn't, it's a hobby, right? So uh, it's it's difficult, you know. It's some sports like you go to golf. For example, a caddy can make a good living working with a great golfer. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I used to, I worked with professional boxers and world champion. Matter of fact, I coached the uh, I did some work with the the lightweight champion of the world and the middleweight champion of the world. And uh, there's money there, right? If you want to coach somebody, you get 10% of their purse, and yeah. they're pulling down millions of dollars for a fight. Uh, and you got five or six of those guys in your quiver, you're making some money. You could dedicate your entire existence to focusing on those two or three people. Uh, in the sport of uh, running on a recreational level, I mean, let's forget the, the top echelon athletes. Um, there, there's just really not, unless, I mean, it, then it becomes a function of how many people can you treat, right? Yeah, which is uh, a I, problem in itself. How many people, you know, yeah, How much can you I mean, fit into a square box? It, it's... Yeah, I coach I coach athletes virtually now, uh, all over the world, and uh, there's a limit to how many of those people I can actually spend time with. You know, yeah. where I do a virtual call with them, and you know, it lasts maybe 45 minutes. So in the day, how many 45 minutes do you have, right? And yeah. So there's a physical limitation. It's also the screen time too. If you're used to, I mean, this was when I. Uh, you know, moved my entire business virtually as well as a coaching business from a brick and mortar location. That initial transition for me was strange because I went from, you know, being on my feet for 14 hours a day, moving all the time to sitting here where I am right now, looking at the screen for the same amount of hours. Uh, that was a lot Brutal. to handle too. It's just how much mentally can you wrap your head 
around that? And then how available are you to each of those people? Because it can't be diminishing returns for the eighth person in your day compared no. to the first because they're paying the same and they deserve the same focus, you know? Yeah. So it makes a challenge. Well, I mean, um, I didn't mean to get off on this tangent and start, you know, ranting about, you know, the, the suckiness of coaching. Uh, I love what I do. Let's, don't get me wrong. I love what I do. I love working with athletes. I love to solve problems. Every one of these athletes I work with, they're, to me, they're like a Rubik's Cube. And my job is to figure out how to get all the colors to fall into place. And the more challenging it is, the more, more fun it is for me. And so I, I figure that I'm a problem solver. Someone comes to me and says, hey, look, this is what's going on with me. This is what I'm trying to achieve. And then it's my responsibility to find out what I can do to get them to that, that end game. And, uh, and I take it in all strides. So, you know, again, getting away from the concept of being a running coach, I, I'm coaching triathletes. I, I'm coaching people that are to, competing in high rocks. That's kind of the new thing I've seen. Yeah. I've written a very successful program, program for CrossFit. And uh, ironically, when I wrote this program, it's called Training the Dark Side, if you've not heard of it. Mm -hmm. um, Training the Dark Side, I wrote and had never in my life stepped foot into a CrossFit space. I mean, I owned a facility that we actually did CrossFit style Olympic oriented workouts for athletes. But it, it, I, I was reluctant to put CrossFit's name on, on the box because... I wasn't comfortable with it. I wasn't comfortable using my talent and putting their name on top of my talent. Right. Because if 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 you were, let's just say you live at, I'm just throwing this out there, you live in New Jersey and you're training at a CrossFit place out there, you're having a great time, there's great coaches, it's great juju, you know, everything's working for you. And you see a CrossFit sign here in Tennessee and you think, oh, there's another CrossFit place. And you go in there and they suck. Yeah. <laughs> and they absolutely suck. But the concept of having that moniker up there that says CrossFit, you got the brand up there, that in itself would seem to be, um, you know, the gatekeeper. Yeah, did, we are all you good take, here. Uh, did you take heat for for jumping into that without like, uh, you know, without having rolled your sleeves up in the CrossFit world? I feel like that's a lot of times the first things people look to is go, okay, what has this guy done? what has he achieved is kind of everyone's initial metric when in reality what's what's unique about science in my eyes in the coaching space is if i'm an athlete and i'm comp trying to compete at the highest level and i want to be the best i want knowledge and data that's it and if that if if my boxing coach is freddie roach and he's one of the best guys to ever do it, but he can barely string five words together. And he's certainly not jumping rope and getting in the ring. I want that guy because he knows what is right. He's a master, right? Like very late in his life, Helio Gracie still trained jujitsu, but there were many times when he didn't, right? But it, that didn't make him any less knowledgeable, capable. He's the grand master. Right. You want to learn from nobody else than him. So how did you approach that when you're delivering this yeah, information? Yeah, well, so that's... first of all, uh, there was a, I had a partner in the project, somebody that had been uh, very effective in the CrossFit space. And he, uh, I'm not going to use his name. Uh, I just don't want to use Fair. his name simply because there were that's some right. things that went down that, uh, not with me and him, but him and CrossFit, where he was blackballed. Uh, literally somebody, one of the judges 
uh, fouled him a couple times, and he threatened to kill the guy, and, and they kicked him. He just got blackballed from CrossFit. We'll definitely remain nameless then. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, the long story short is he thought – he came to me, and he looked at what I was doing. He goes, dude, he goes, you know what? He goes, you could write a program for CrossFit, and you, it'll be bank. Uh, and I started looking at it. I said, you know, my frustration with CrossFit is people look at the person lying on the ground and looking at that as, as success. To me, I look at that as failure. If the work took you to the ground, you know, good for you. You did everything you could to try to achieve the end, but it put you on your back. You right. failed. I want a guy to be able to go through the same workouts, the same wads of the day, and like this and walk away and have finished better than the person that was lying on his back. And it, to, that, okay, real quick, though, to play devil's advocate on yeah. that. Because yeah. I, I think it's interesting. So let's say you take uh, athlete X who's taking selfies of himself lying on the ground after a workout. And you're yeah. like, look, All look, man, you know that this person is just not operating at their peak. You know that metabolically they're probably inefficient. You know that mechanically their lifts in different areas aren't up to par. They're probably not running mechanically the right way. And you go, you know what? We're going to get you to a level through – diagnostics, intake, and programming to be much more efficient through the, the workout. You put them through the same workout, and they do exactly that and kind of dust their hands off and walk through the finish line. Are they not at a disadvantage for not pushing themselves further to their brink, though, and how much more would they achieve on the end of that if they took the skill adjustments and the performance adjustments but maintained that uh, kind of all out to failure mentality. Well, okay. So, so let me just kind of share with you how I approached it because I think I'm missing you a little bit. Fair. Uh, first of all, I didn't try to teach anybody how to lift weights. Um, most of the people in the CrossFit space know what they need to do to lift weights correctly. And obviously, sure. mechanical aptitude in that space is critical, right? Very, yes. I didn't try to mess with that, you know? What I looked at is the energy cost, fatigue, because mm. fatigue is the enemy in all sport. And you kind of touched on it a few times, the metabolic expense associated with the work that you're trying to achieve. So if you constantly take yourself beyond a point of uh, metabolic efficiency – you're going to fail every stinking time. What I did is I showed them how to flow in and out of their training to develop more capacity to produce work minus failure. Like and while that. you were talking, I pulled this up because I want to share this with you. Please. This is a, this I saved this because this was so cool. This is an email that I got from a guy in Switzerland that wrote or that followed my training program. And I want to preface this by telling you the guy's got a master's degree in sports science. Okay? And it's going to be real quick. I'm just going to read it to you because it's going to blow your mind. No, roll it. He goes, I am overwhelmed by the effect of Dark Horse. Uh, what, uh, the effect that Dark Horse had on my performance. It was just crazy. Partly I had to adjust the weights to my level, which is understandable in the first benchmark wad. Uh, EMOM times failure of three front power cleans, three front squats, three push jerks. I used 155 pounds, okay? Only reached seven rounds in the first test. After four weeks, I increased to 17 rounds in test two, which was just unbelievable. 
I would have been satisfied with 10 rounds, 17 blew me away. In the third test, I increased to 23 rounds, and finally in the last week, to an unbelievable 27 rounds. This is an increase of 285% in his functional capacity to produce that work. He goes, it was very interesting to see that I achieved such huge increases without any increase in strength training. I've also improved in all other wads, and I have improved in all my benchmarks, which is fantastic. Thank you so much. And so this is just from adjustments in this is a, this metabolic is a guy that followed a, <laughs> This is a guy that you know, drank the Kool-Aid, followed an yeah. eight-week program that I wrote, which was basically showing you how to develop your energy system so that your capacity to survive well in an, a, a toxic anaerobic state would improve dramatically which allowed him to have uh, to, to battle the fatigue-inducing sense of producing more and more work. 285% increase in eight weeks. Well, I saved it because it was, it was a mind-blower. I'd love to, to talk about this because, I mean, selfishly, this has a ton of application in my life, and uh, we're not even talking about running anymore, This is which is yeah. much more exciting well, to me. I mean, with this, me by the way. Yeah, this is about... Uh, performance and management and and buffering fatigue which in the martial arts realm grappling and jiu-jitsu which is what i spend the majority of my time doing strength training is really just a something that i do to apply to the sports that i love what is it that you're doing with these individuals to help them develop this buffer well, so the problem with most people that are in that type of space is they they go too hard too often. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about developing the aerobic system. I think that's a waste of time, especially really? in those. Oh, absolutely. It's huh. a dead waste of time okay. because there's nothing you're going to do in competition that's going to uh, pull on your aerobic system. It's going to go Very directly. Safe. As soon as you go, listen, if you put a heart rate monitor on, and throw go through a, a typical 40-minute wad and, and look at what yeah. your heart rate's doing. You're anaerobic from gait to conclusion, right? The problem isn't whether you have enough energy to complete the task. I don't care how hard you go or how much you weigh. Odds are you'll have enough carbohydrate in your system to support that anaerobic activity. So it's not a function of running out of energy. It's a function of toxicity. And you get, you get into that toxicity and it starts shunting your muscle function. And so what I started to do is show them how to push on that window effectively. Not going aerobic, not trying to develop all kinds of aerobic capacity. I'm talking about developing anaerobic capacity because your central nervous system is at work all the time trying to keep you from killing yourself. Right. And every time you get into the paint where you start to go a little too hard, you start to you know, invoke the, the shunting functions that the CNS will put on you to keep you from killing yourself. Now, if you start to broach the intensity progressively with allowance over time, you'll start to notice that your capacity starts to improve. And I've seen it, and I just mentioned this one guy, he's not the only guy that reached out to me. I've had, right. it, took, it took a leap of faith from people to take this really novel concept of training and put it to work for eight weeks. And I said from the gate, I said, look, it's eight weeks of your life. If it doesn't work, stop doing it. Do what you were doing. You'll, be re you'll rebound in no time. It's not going to be a problem. Just try it. Uh, one of my clients so, that, that did this work, 
just went to the games this 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 year and had been I think I don't know she's probably been there six seven times and she uh, last year was the the world champion masters and she did that uh, under my tutelage and I wasn't coaching her I just told her I gave her the work I showed her the concepts I did the I did clinically do the diagnostics on her to show her what the levels should be and how she should move but she took that information and went to work she said I'm working probably 30 percent less than I normally might I'm sleeping better my lifts are better my energy levels are better I'm a much better athlete than I ever had been from just following the the, the premises that I wrote for her and, and I'm telling you it's not even rocket science it's just understanding that at the end of the day it isn't about the lift it isn't about your aerobic capacity it's about fatigue and understanding the nature of fatigue and doing the correct things to stave off the potential that uh, fatigue coming on too early that's all it is so I made it sound I, easy if I use busy. this like jujitsu example again, uh, you're yeah. very right. I mean, the second that you slap hands and you actually start, if you're not just lackadaisically going through it, but you actually enter into a tournament setting, for example, and this has happened to me in the past where I train hard and I keep my aerobic fitness, you know, I'd go 25, 30 minute runs a couple times a week just to, to keep that because honestly, I, th I thought it was very important. You get into the tournament setting, the second that it begins, Everything's from a CNS perspective, from a metabolic perspective, is heightened. Your heart rate that you start at is much higher than it would be if you were just in a training environment, and it doesn't stop for the five minutes. And then what happens is you're not used to that because that isn't really how you've been training. So in this one to two minute rest period between that and your next round, you get an adrenaline dump because you're a little shocked. And then you go into the next one, and you're worked. And you feel the fatigue in your body. You feel it change your breathing patterns if that's something that you're focusing on. So if I'm kind of thinking about everything you're saying here, it sounds like you can do less total aerobic work, if none at all, and supplement well, it with more concise bouts of anaerobic work. And that Yeah, well, so it just it, you got to look at the, the task, okay? Now, I wouldn't be having this conversation if we were talking about a, a, a marathoner. Uh, right. And when you know you spoke with Blue, you know you know the outcome of his work. Uh, we kept him proportionately. He was always about sixty percent of his total work was aerobic, right? Because at the end of the day, you need to to delve into that aerobic metabolism as efficiently as you can, but you also need to develop the anaerobic energy system because there is energy availability there too if you know how to to reap it if you know how to pull it right. out you have to teach your body to be able to access that lactate as an energy source and most people don't do that they they're the, the toxicity that's that's apparent when they run into this anaerobic environment it's like you know it's like a vampire in the sun it's like ah yeah. they just can't take it because they're not prepared for it and so, the, taking it a step further, the concept of trying to stay aerobic, 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 build your aerobic energy, uh, uh, that's such a misnomer because you don't win races aerobically. You just don't. You just don't. You know, you're going to have to get into the paint. You're going to have to push if you want to win, especially if you've got competition that's, that's causing you to, you know, throw down. Well, and, and it's worth noting, too, uh, just for people listening, that running a marathon is one thing. That it takes work and time and hours 
running 11 marathons below two and a half hours is an extremely different thing. And you do not complete that aerobically. So it's worth noting that maybe when someone thinks about a marathon, there are different ways to run a marathon. But if you're talking about elite performance, the blues of the world don't do that aerobically. They are pushing themselves a lot. And that's a discomfort level that the rest of us humans most of the time are not comfortable being at from a mental standpoint, but from what you're saying also from a physiological standpoint. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a function of the way they're... And so getting back to the concept of periodization training, which is still, you know, it's a big deal. A lot of people still hanging on to those concepts is you, whatever you... Let's say you invested 10 weeks of base development training. So clearly your, your threshold's starting to move north. You're, you're starting to... Maybe your threshold began at 140 beats per minute. Now it's pushed up to 160. Now that you're at 160 with your threshold, you dump your base training, you start going into more anaerobic activities. What do you think happens? The door swings the other way. Right. It's like a tug of war. You just start letting go of it, and then all of a sudden your threshold dumps back to where you started. It was a total waste of time. You know, you, mm. That's why the, the concept of flow, which is what I pushed into this, this book, is so critical. It took, and I, listen, I, I worked with, Blue probably told you, I, I worked with him for a, over a decade. Yeah. And he went from a 246 marathoner to almost within uh, a season dropping below 230. And the difference was, A, the mechanics. It had very little to do with his, his uh, aerobic potential. His aerobic potential was off the hook. You, you know this. He had an 85 VO2 score. And I, listen, I've tested thousands. I mean, I'm not talking about somebody said. I'm saying I tested thousands of athletes. And I can count on my hand how many times I saw an 80-plus VO2 score. And working is Hunter on there? I'm sorry? Is no. Hunter in there too? No, he's no. not. As a matter See, that's of fact, crazy. Wow. As a matter of fact, uh, again, there's there's another study. I, I've tested Hunter on many, many occasions over the course of his career. And in the early stages when I was trying to help him win the world championships in obstacle course racing and uh, Spartan racing, his VO2 score was high. His threshold was high. And I mean, I have literally been on a bicycle next to him on a 13-mile run, monitoring his heart rate and his pace, knowing what his aerobic threshold, his anaerobic threshold is. I, at 160 beats per minute, he's 66% into his fat stores. And at that pace, at that uh, level of intensity, his production is sub six-minute pace. And when this, when does he cross over into what? carbohydrate utilization? At but well, to be 100%, he was probably about 170 beats per minute. Wow. And he but can sustain the, that. There's the, well, I, I stood next to him on, well, I was on a bike next to him for a half marathon, and I never let him go over a six-minute pace, and he stayed at 160 beats per minute the whole time, which means that his access to carbohydrate as an energy source was 60%. Yeah. So now his, the, the, the caloric expense per hour for him was about 12, 1400 calories, but subtract 60% of that. And you, what you have left is he's got plenty of time in that fat utilization before he starts going crazy with energy. But I'm, there's this end of the story. When we got away from that kind of work and started getting into anaerobic, anaerobic activity, the CrossFit space, high rocks, his, his uh, VO2 score dropped uh, 
dramatically and his threshold dropped dramatically where 160 turned into 130 okay mm. but he's a world champion in the sport now and he's you know he was so perplexed when he's looking at this he i'm goes, perplexed this he says this doesn't make any sense he goes how in the hell can i'm i'm fitter than i've ever been in my life right now and my score is so much less than it used to be i said it's not a function of your fitness it's a function of the way you've molded your metabolic structure all this anaerobic training has developed an adaptation in that it's that space i said don't worry about it just keep doing what you're doing it's working wow so his ability to support a, a 1k run is well enough to be with the leaders his power output in this in the the strength activities surpasses the ability of everybody else in the world and collectively those two things are a winning proposition i said just don't worry about it. you're doing fine because your anaerobic talent is taking over because right. we're not looking at whether you're going to run out of gas in an hour you're not going to run out of gas it's a function of how well you can tolerate the toxicity that you're creating for yourself so we're going to get better at that and so by the way i do that now with with high rocks athletes that are being challenged in these different spaces i test their metabolic response at each of those events to see kind of this is kind of flipping um <laughs> a couple of perceptions that i have on my head because i've done not not even in the ballpark of as many as you have but hundreds of vo2 max assessments when i was a trx coach with equinox and even in the literature that we were fed in everything that i would find or read about and in my assessment of my clients my desire was to always always increase their vo2 max well look, and i never I mean, thought much about granted they're not hunter mcintyre trying to win world titles but i never even thought about letting that fall with the intention of increasing the efficiency within it to see like someone like hunter lose uh, or not lose but decrease vo2 max and to be a better athlete they all they just seem like uh those are mutually exclusive well, things. So it's fascinating so, to me so look at it okay you know you're studied in this you should know it's a function of muscle structure and function right you, when you get into fast twitch fibers they're very dense they're very where slow twitch fibers are very porous and the poor the poorest nature of slow twitch fibers is they're very aerobic the oxygen passes through them very nicely so there's a lot more opportunity, not to mention the vascularity that is associated with it. So there's a lot of places to put oxygen, which would lend you to have a higher VO2 score. Fair. So when you start shifting those muscle fibers to be tighter and squeeze them down, you're not going to get the same kind of passage of oxygen through that muscle structure. So you get a guy with really dense muscle and do a VO2 max test on him, you're not going to see a big score. It's, odds are you won't see a big score. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that the likelihood on a general consensus, it's going to be less of a VO2 score. Gotcha. But that doesn't mean they can't produce a tremendous amount of power. Right. right. It's not a function of power. So, um, and I can tell you the flip side of that is I did, uh, recently did a full-blown diagnostics with uh, uh, Chris Roglowski, who just won the world championship in High Rocks. Her VO2 score was low. It was it was really low. 
um, but her metabolic efficiency was massive. I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody really? have the aerobic potential that this girl had. I mean, literally in all the tests I've ever done, I'm, say, I'm being honest with you, I've never seen anybody that aerobic in my life. Really? And now that's almost an oxymoron compared to what I just said. You're right. It's the opposite uh, here. But she didn't outpower these girls. She outendured them. The audience she competed with were strong, but they didn't have endurance. She's just completely endurance queen. And she just, she had enough of it going on. And, and she didn't even start to shine till the, till the last couple events in the, in the race to win the world championships. And then she won by about 30 seconds. Um, now, there was a couple people missing from the competition that might have changed the outcome. Um, but at the end of the day... Um, so how do you could... how do you approach that? Because it's it seems the opposite, right? She's much more endurance based, less anaerobic, and winning. <laughs> so well, but you don't want to change. Much, I think it right? has a lot to do with the the field that she was dealing with. And, her and her I, competitors. Yes, gotcha. I, I think there was, and I'm not saying she it was just a walkover. There was just no talent there. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying the the mix because. Early stages of the of the event, she wasn't doing that well. She, you know, she was she was getting pushed around a little bit, and uh, even in the runs, they were they were they were right there with her. She wasn't like outrunning everybody every time they did a run, but they started to fatigue, and she didn't, and she started getting stronger towards the end, and they started getting weaker, and then she ended up winning. It's the bottom line. That's what happened. So Let's uh, take this this concept here because now I'm just thinking about like all sports under the sun and. <laughs> Yeah. I'm always curious with with people like yourself who you've been doing this for so long, you totally get and understand this on a level that you kind of have to have the tenure to be able to even conceptualize what I'm about to ask you. But yeah. when you look to baseball, to basketball, to hockey, what are your initial thoughts on how they're running these performance institutes? If you had a magic wand, what would you jump in there and and maybe we can go a couple sport examples. Well, I've had the what are you doing different? Listen, I've had the opportunity to voice my opinion in a professional space before. Uh, when I used to, I used to do the preseason diagnostics for the LA Kings. I go through fifty-two professional hockey players in a day doing uh, anaerobic power tests and aerobic uh, VO two max tests, and um, and I did it for three seasons. And you know, I would get all this data, which they paid me for they wanted me to collect all this data and turn it over to the coach and uh i would look at it and say huh this is interesting this guy has got the most amount of power they're not playing and this is what they ought to be doing with this guy and this is what they ought to be doing with that guy <laughs> exactly and i and i introduced those concepts or at least those thoughts to the and i wasn't looking for a gig i was just saying hey now that i got all this information wouldn't you really like to know where best to use this information where it might right. And they didn't care. They didn't want to know. Why is that? Because, Why is there so much it, resistance? Because the way it works in professional sport is that if you don't produce, they're not going to try to fix you. They're going to replace you. If, if, you, if you don't get it done, there's a guy standing out by the door right now that's waiting to take your spot. And it's a lot easier just to replace the guy that's not getting it done than it is to try to fix a guy. They, they just don't look at it as, as a, a timely efficient process to try to turn a, a, a mediocre athlete into 
you know, a premium athlete. They don't do that. Right. That's why that's why they have these combines, right? You go to a combine, and it's either you can do it or you can't. And if you can't, goodbye. It's I mean, it's right. just not even a conversation. You're out. And so um, what a lot of these performance processes that you're speaking of are to keep the guys healthy. Keep the guys from gotcha. injury. Keep them training. Keep them on point. And, you know, they're not looking to fix anything. They're looking to keep what they have working. And that, at the end of the day, what's what a lot of these strength coaches are doing in those spaces, just make sure the guys are working, make sure the guys are staying out of injury, and keep the guys busy. Because you know what? These guys come with talent or they don't. And, if, right. and I, I, believe me, when I tell you, I'm doing diagnostics on these guys that were, you know, they're showcasing. You know, they, uh, the, the scouts brought them in and say, look, we've got five guys. We're going to do some testing on them. You know, let's take a look and see how they're doing. And these guys would ask me, hey, what do I got to do? What do I, what, what kind of numbers do I got to throw up to, you know, to impress these guys? And I tease them, you know, I said, look, you don't blow 50, just sneak out the back door. Just, just, <laughs> just, get, just make your way out the back door. Find your way back to Russia or the Ukraine or where you, wherever you came from. That's it's funny. It's like you have a, it's like on a video game, you know, you get all the player attributes and it shows you like this guy's power level, his endurance level, his skill level. It's kind of like you had access to all those and you're showing the coaches going, look, if we can just bump this meter over a little bit, this guy's a starter all time. You know, he's got every other attribute, maybe the mental part you got to work on or something. But I'm telling uh, you, I, I'm telling you, it, it's a shit show. Honest to God. It's like, uh, uh, you know who Luke Robitaille is? Familiar with this guy? Ro the last name sounds Robitaille. very familiar. Luke Robitaille in his, in his day was one of the best hockey players in the sport. You know, he, he he was, you know, the flagship player for the L.A. Kings while I was testing these guys. Luke blew a 49.5 VO2 score. Wow. And uh, I remember I was on my way to Vegas for something, and I got a call from the coach. He goes, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, Luke's not happy with his VO2 score. I said, ask him if he wants me to blow into the pipe next time. <laughs> I said, what do you want me to do? I yeah. said, I, I'm just the messenger, man. He, he's the one that had to blow into the pipe while he was working. It's either he pulled it or he didn't. I said, now, had he had a better score in the past? Maybe. Did he did he just, you know, screw the pooch while he was off season? I don't know. I'm, I'm just, that's not my job. You asked me to test him. I tested him. His score sucked. You know, is he your best player? Yes. Did it matter that he had a low score? No. No, right. Uh, but, you know, they, that's the way they look. This pastor, they just want somebody, they want somebody to say, this guy isn't getting it done, and that guy is. I'll give you another example, since it's kind of fun to talk about. At least, I hope you're not bored yet. No, I, I got time. I, okay. I love this stuff. <laughs> uh, this, this guy's name was uh, Yuroslav Modri. Big defenseman for the LA Kings. Big dude. Russian dude, right? A lot of Russians on the LA Kings. But Yuroslav Modri, we do, you know what a Wingate test is? No. So a Wingate test is uh, a 30-second anaerobic power test. Like max uh, out effort, 30-second, yes. as so, hard yeah, as you so can the way, go. The, back in the day, now it's, this is, I'm dating myself. This is back in 2000, right? So I'll give you not. I'm thinking of the one. scene from Rocky with. <laughs> okay, so the way it works is you're on a, like a spinning bike. Yeah. And we put 10% of your weight in weights on a little carriage that we're going to drop onto that wheel for resistance. Yeah. So you, you freewheel, and when you get up to top speed, pull the pin, weight drops, 
and then you wrestle with that thing for 30 seconds. And what we're looking for is the fatigue index, okay? The point of the maximal power output, sustainable power, and where, you're, where you leak your power out over those 30 seconds. And so the, at the end of the day, you get a high score. And so um, because these guys are so nasty powerful, we literally duct tape their feet to the pedals, right? <laughs> oh, because so they would rattle pull off. Pull their foot out, right? Yeah, yeah. And so Yuroslav managed to jerk his foot out of the duct tape and screwed up the anaerobic power test. Put him on the, the electronically braked um, metabolic bike. So these, these are like a Lodi, you know, medical grade um, metabolic bike where you could schedule when you want them to fail, whatever. Right, right. Um, and he spun the motor on that thing. So, <laughs> right. So <laughs> the day <laughs> you're running out of options, right? So, the, you know, so he screwed both of his tests up. So yeah. the day that, uh, I went to get paid, the coaches get me in a corner and they're going, so we got to ask you, did, um, Modri break the bike or did the bike just break? And I'm waiting for my big fat check, right? I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I just want to go. I want. I don't yeah. want to get into. I'm not going to start cause, causing any, you know, episodes here. I said, you know what? He's a big dude. He's powerful. Um, you know, he probably broke the bike. And uh, so I went to their first game, and you know, when the players come out on the ice and the announcer is calling off by name or whatever, they go, "Yuroslav Modri destroyed the metabolic bike during preseason." He signed a three-year deal for $14.5 million. Wow. I did not get a Christmas card from this guy, right? <laughs> I could have crushed his career in that meeting. You did him a solid. He doesn't even <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, so, I mean, you know, getting back to the idea of being a running coach, I've tested all sorts of athletes. So I've had a really interesting snapshot of performance um, and the cause and effect relationship with how they train, and what their outcome was supposed to be. And the the diagnostics are only a benchmark for me to um, further my opinion about where this needs to go. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a runner, OCR athlete, whatever. And it isn't always gonna be, you know, the starchy textbook approach to diagnostics that they teach you. You know, it's like, you know, the guys who go to West Point and become officers and they throw them in the trenches of Vietnam and the sergeant in the, the, the trenches that had been there for two years fighting, you know, right. he's not going to pay attention to you. No. On, on, this, on this topic of, again, diving back into how many sports you really have covered and the fact that you've been able to view them through this metabolic set of eyes, which is unique, right, to have this understanding of our metabolic engine across multiple sports and then to have seen it in action with actual athletes – I'm, I'm personally fascinated with nasal breathing and just breathing in general and then its application to sport. Now, some of this is a little bit nuanced from my perspective because it's there's a mental win to it. If I'm able to control my breathing uh, on the mats, then I have an advantage over my <laughs> hypoxic uh, opponent. And so I'm curious, in the performance setting, have you seen anything – that points to nasal breathing as an advantage, as a reason to dedicate part of your training to nasal exercises? I How honestly, can... I, I get I get that question asked a lot. Mm -hmm. How should I breathe and, and this type of thing? And what I know 
to be true from a general sense. Okay, I'm not going to say that there's not some outliers, but from a general sense, your ana ana anatomic uh, response to breathing, you're not going to have control when your CNS identifies a threat. It's going to it's going to cause you to breathe the most efficiently that your body thinks it can breathe. So when you get into the paint, and I refer to this as being, you know, you're really being taxed, trying to control your breathing, in my opinion, would be a hindrance. I so think let's define, maybe we can define uh, the paint as uh, a range that's applicable to maybe well, the general. Let's call ventilatory threshold, okay? Cool, yeah. When yeah. you get to a place where your ventilatory threshold is met, I just don't think you should or even should attempt to try to control your breathing. I think you should let your breathing do what your breathing wants to do. And, and this is actually, even in the, the nasal, I would call it like the nasal literature, this seems to be a common agreeance, is that if, if you're an MMA fighter, right, and you train rounds nasally and, and you learn how to control your breathing on certain spots, when you get in the thick of it and you're defending your fifth takedown and you're up against the fence and there's two minutes left, let it go. Be, an, be a fucking athlete. Let right. it, it just rip. Or if you're running and you <laughs> cross up into the upper percentages of your anaerobic threshold, that's not the place to you be concerned with it. with it. Should we be thinking about it below that? Um, I think that uh, in an aerobic setting, uh, if you, and I'm not suggesting that you need to breathe through your nose. I'm thinking that if you try to at least get a handle on the way you're breathing, the timeline in the which you breathe, in those circumstances, get a little bit more efficient with your, your capacity to move in and air in and out of your body. Um, in an aerobic state, you're probably going to cause to be more efficient. You're probably going to cause to be more economical. I just think that there comes a place where even when it m might seem like it's stressful, your body's taking over and making decisions for you that might be the better decisions, right? right. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit at ends with it. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say I know this to be true or not true. But my, my opinion is that once you get into, once you, you, you cross over that ventilatory threshold, your autonomic system is going to just say, look, we got this. Just let us do this thing, right? I found that to be true in my own training. Like when I started, uh, I have not gone on a run that wasn't 100% nasal in over like two years now. And again, this is, it's just kind of like a side project thing for me that I like to do. And, and I do it aerobically for, well, now I'm questioning the whole aerobic thing <laughs> pretty heavily. Uh, but I you know, was able to take like a 20 minute run at a, basically a 10 minute mile because it was so, there was so much discomfort in the beginning to now being able to run, you know, like a 730 with 100% nasal breathing. And when I think about that, I'm like, well, that's stupid because what if you just open your mouth? What if you're running, uh, you know, 710s or something? And now you're holding yourself back from that. But there's a confidence builder in being able to do that, that when I do have to open the gates and let it run in training, I feel, and, and maybe this is more just like personal feeling, but I feel like I'm more capable. Have you ever well, look, had? So I think I think that what you're speaking of is you invested a lot of energy in trying to be efficient breathing through your nose. 
And yeah. in so doing, you became more efficient at reading through your notes. And right. it, 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 you performed better for having do, doing it. So I don't know. I mean, um, I, when I think about all the variables that will get in the way of your performance, uh, that's not the first place I'm going to reach. Um, yeah. I mean, tr that's kind of like drawing, you know, um, a 2% solution where there's bigger fish to fry. You might if change the way you move. That's a 40% solution. That'd be a better investment. And by the way, when you become more economical in the way you move, you're going to also be more economical in the way you breathe. Because the work you're doing is what's causing you to respirate, right? Right, 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 so, right, right. So I, I'm going to go after the bigger fish. I'm going to go after how we move. And I tell people, it's like when I do a VO2 test. And by the way, I've, I'm old school enough where, you know, doing the nose pinched off with the mouthpiece and whatever, yep. which is a nightmare. You can't breathe through your nose at all to do the VO2 score. you got to breathe through your mouth. And you got to hold on to that thing in your teeth while, and it's bouncing around in your face while you're doing it. You know, that is not efficient. Now, now I use a Hans Rudolph mask now, and people say, how should I breathe? I said, through every hole you can get the air through. Whatever, right. Wherever it can come from, take it, you know? It's funny when I think, because I did a VO2 max assessment when we were learning the whole process. I ended up doing a couple, and I really wish I had access to the data because I'd love to sidebar and, and send it to you. Uh, but I think back now, and I'm like, if I could do that again, I would probably just out of curiosity, I try to breathe through my nose as long as I could. And then I, I would, wouldn't anymore because I would have to breathe through my mouth to really truly reach peak numbers. And I wonder if that would have any effect or not. That being said, and now having talked to you for over an hour, and I generally tend to be very open-minded, I'm just starting to wonder if that's even a worthy investment. It might have been a horrible investment, actually, the past year and a half. And I could have been better spending my time running anaerobically hard and getting a much better payout in training. Well, I mean, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm just going to tell you that it's food for thought. It's like, yeah. Um, you look at the respiratory consequence of more intense efforts and uh, the way your body's trying to process that oxygen or air or liberating, you know, uh, metabolic waste from your body this whole system that's at work, if you can get that to be in more harmony and rather than having, you know, some uh, hindrance in the process, I just think it's natural to get air through your nose and your mouth. And, and uh, some people don't, uh, and, you know, whatever. But to me, it's like if, if I had to empty a container and I had all this area in which to dump from, as opposed to being limited to just these two nostrils, I would think I'd get more volume from this, you know. You mean for getting rid of, of getting rid of carbon dioxide? Well, either either that or taking air in, right? Just yeah. at, at the end of the day, how much air can you take in and how much can you process, right? It's, can, can I tell you something? It almost doesn't make a difference how much air you can take in if your metabolic structure is such that you can't process the oxygen anyway. Interesting. Right? Just because you get more air in doesn't mean you're going to take uh, you're absorbing more oxygen. Well, and that, and this points back to kind of this overarching theme here, which is metabolic efficiency. That that's really the thing that you should be aiming to tackle if if performance is really something that you're concerned with. Because you can do all these other things, you can nasal breathe, you can take big breaths, you can take shallow breaths, but if your body's 
the physiological system isn't primed to do anything about it, then it's like having shitty run mechanics and buying special shoes. Like now you have. So so here's the thing and over overarching thing in my mind. And by the way, you know, I, I toyed with the concept of me writing this book with you, but it took me four years to release this book. I mean, I was perplexed. I wrote it three times, scuttled the mission. I was 99% done writing it and threw it in the trash and started over three times. Fourth time, I finally got it out. It took me four I, I, I had my own podcast. That, by the way, I've done countless numbers of podcasts and interviews with people. And I was talking about this book for all these years, that it's coming, it's coming. And I was like, you know what? It's like I've been crying wolf. i got to get this damn thing done now because now everybody's going to think I'm just full of shit, right? So, uh, but I spent four years playing with it. And when it finally, when it finally just like punched me in the face, I, I was a changed individual. <laughs> I started to realize the, the folly in, you know, trying to control people's processes through uh, structure. So I'm saying, okay, your threshold's 150 beats per minute. Stay below that number for la, 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 la. You don't go past blah, 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 right? And, or, or go, let me give you a better analogy. Go to the track. We're going to do 10 400s. I want you to do them on a, uh, an hour and t- uh, a minute and 20, and I want you to take 20 seconds rest in between each. And this is what we're going to call a speed workout. Okay? What happens? You go to the track. You, you complete the first 400 on time. You're edgy with the recovery. You go into the second round. You fall short by 10 seconds. Now you need about 45 seconds rest. And you, you take 45 seconds rest. And you fall shy by about another 20 seconds. So what do you start doing as you start to see that you're slowing down? Is you start working harder. And working harder gets sloppier and sloppier and slower and slower. You're working harder and you're not improving your ability to speed. Now you're just learning how to take a beating. And that lesson was just scuttled. The concept of going to the track to create speed was completely scuttled by the concept of trying to follow this paradigm, right? right? So... This is what has been written in training programs for decades. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Hard day, easy day, easy day, hard day. You know, whatever, right? Where what I suggested is, look, let's start paying it. I mean, sure, I want to know what my what my metabolic turn point is. It's important. I want to know that when I'm investing time aerobically, that in fact it's aerobic, or when I'm trying to kind of control some of the anaerobic intensity, I have a sense of what that might look like. But when I go out for that run, I want to allow my my perception to, to rule. I feel pretty good right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna bust a move. Yeah. It's time to back off. I'm feeling it. I just gotta back off now. I'm good again. I'm gonna go back out and do it again. So as Blue had suggested to you, we're gonna visit all variations of intensity. But we're going to do it uh, not scheduled, but with permission from our body. When our body says, I'm ready to go, I'm not. I love this. Yeah. Okay. So, and then we look at the tail of the tape. At the end of the week, how much aerobic conditioning did we allow in the training? How much anaerobic conditioning did we allow? How much time did we dedicate to skill? All of those ingredients that we knew need to be there, 
we're omnipresent in every workout. And at the end of the week, we still were 65, 70% aerobic conditioning, which is what we wanted to do to begin with, right? right? The difference is we didn't schedule it. And, and I, you know, I made the analogy and it's kind of silly, but it works for me. It's like energy you take in. We know we gotta have, we gotta have protein, we gotta have fat, we have to have carbohydrates. Those three substrates, you know, you have to have them, right? right? And so you're, that's how you're going to feed your body to produce work. Now, you're not going to say, well, I'm training now, so I'm going to use my fat on Monday, and I'm going to use my carbs <laughs> on Tuesday, and I'm going to use my protein on Wednesday. Right. Look at you laughing. It's a ridiculous proposition. You would never align or segregate those energy concerns over the course of the week in order to hope at the end of the week that you're properly fed. Yeah. Right. And so why would you train that way? Why would you segregate the intensities over the course of the week and hope that by Friday, everything you needed to do landed in the right place? Because I, I think part, part of me thinks like, it, you know, as coaches, it makes us feel special when you can come up with some great like seriously. I, I mean, I, I laugh. I laugh at what you're saying, but I laugh also just at so many other things that I'm thinking of about um, structure, like how. I, I just can't tell you how many times you come into something with such a plan and you're never on the plan because someone didn't sleep well enough. Someone's food's been off. They traveled. Training got pushed by a day. Children, job, stress, metabolic stress, total stress on the body, like the laundry list of things that goes on and on and on. And the more that you've been, I'll use strength training as an example, the more that you have a lifetime as a weightlifter, the more you realize some days you come in and, and you just got to do mobility and other days you come in and you feel like a firecracker. And right. on those days you push it because you know, you have this window of performance for some reason, utilize it, take advantage oh, yeah. of that. Oh yeah. Get some Your hard body work. Says go, you go. Right. And so yeah. th by the way, you know, again, I'm, I'm coaching athletes that are racing and in the obstacle course racing space, they race a lot, you know, and I've never been, accustomed to this type of approach. I used to do a lot of work with triathletes and marathoners. We plan for an event that's six, eight months out, right? right? And we're putting all the work together, lining it up perfectly to take you to a peak for that event. These guys are racing every weekend and they'll race on Saturday, then Sunday, right? I'm going to do a long race on Saturday. Then I'm going to do a sprint on Sunday. I said, you're out of your mind. You're not doing that. <laughs> you're not doing that. It, but, but the point is, is that all the well intentions, all, all the great aspirations of developing a solid program for somebody, the gun goes off and all that shit goes out the window. Now all they're doing is trying to stay ahead of somebody or try to catch somebody and they're no longer in control of the process, right? Now they're just responding to whatever is going down, right? And so I started to look at the flow concept of training, which prepares you for that. If somebody goes out hard, you go with them, you can do it. Because you train yes. to do that. If, if, if you need to bust a move middle, middle of the event, you got the energy to do it because you prepared yourself for that. Yeah. So you could either control the, the, the forces uh, and be the force, or you can respond to the forces and then ultimately come ahead of them. And I've seen it happen with some of the top flight athletes I work with where they literally crush guys because they had so much control over their, their, their capacity to flow in and out of intensity. Did you, know? you, out of curiosity, did any of these 
one, just the name flow or any of these ideas originate in martial arts? Well, um, so no, but um, listen, I, I early on was a big fan of martial arts. My, my, my brother's a seventh degree black belt. I've been, I've been in and around martial arts all my life, you know, so I have a fondness for martial arts. And I have a fondness for Bruce Lee. And as a matter of fact, you'll see in my, in my book, I, I quote Bruce Lee on many occasions because conceptually, this is the way this guy operated. Yeah, I he mean, we share an idol. <laughs> oh, my God. He understood the nature of flow. Yeah. And everything he did in his training was operating under those premises. And I didn't take, oh, wow, Bruce Lee said this, so let me just do that. I found Bruce Lee after I wrote my book found a meaning that I, I realized the correlation between what he had been doing and what I had written. Right. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't like, oh, so Bruce Lee did this. So I'll right, tell right. Him. So, but, and then I started looking at some other very talented athletes that perception is such a big component of their processes. And, um, you know, it just, and then I started looking at the diagnostics. I mean, I, I'm looking at the testing results. I'll have, so give you an example. I got a guy that his threshold was 120 beats per minute. You know what he likes to do? Ultra beast events, 32 mile mountain events. Jesus. Anything over 120 beats per minute, he's anaerobic. And he's going to be there for several hours. <laughs> how does that work? How, I don't know. how that... does that work? <laughs> because he was so efficient in, in his anaerobic metabolism. He was so good at turning, churning that lactate into workable fuel, it got him through the day. It just if you're, if, uh, I, I hate to jump around, but I want to ask this question. If, if you're not good at doing that, how do you become better at doing that? Well, I think that everybody has the capacity to improve, right? So you just have to know what it is you're trying to do and, and, and get a sense of it and have a realization of uh, the fact that by creating this allowance and having the education you need, you start to put that together and every workout starts to make more and more sense to you. Starts... Like if you're if you're someone who's let's say you're uh, new to jujitsu for example and the second you slap hands you start training you're at 135 beats per minute and let's say that you're that's high for you and and you're anaerobic all of a sudden what suggestions do you have for that individual to well, take it themselves be, it wouldn't be something that you're going to change on the fly right we're not trying to we're not trying to take you into the ring and train you to be more flowy while you're wrestling right you're going to right. go in there you're right. going to go in there it's all the preparatory stuff you did to put you in a position to make that work and that's what i did with the crossfitters too i didn't do i didn't touch their workouts right. i used all the traditional workouts that they the grace and all the different little you know female name workouts yeah. we we employed all those workouts and i didn't there's no place in there that i say do this like this now what i did is said when you're doing the cardio treatments this is the way I want you to supplement your, your training. This is the way you're going to put this together. I guess the, then, what I'm after maybe is some of these granular bits. Like if you, what would be something that you suggest as an adjustment to, yeah, let's say you're doing Fran, right? And you're doing kipping pull-ups and that's strength, but it's also cardiovascular because you got to do a bunch of them and it's going to jack your heart rate up. So what do you tell that individual, uh, with your concepts or understanding here to well, again, how, how do they approach that? You're going to, you're going to need to find a tool of choice where you can 
control um, volume and intensity. So whether it be getting on a rower, a skier, whether you're going to run, whether you're going to jump rope, whatever, something that's developing your cardiovascular system and teaching it how to respond to activity. And you progressively introduce um, greater intensity, but at the same time governing it to a point where you don't always crush into this toxic environment and expect to make friends with it. Right. You have to kind of massage your way into it and out of it, into it and out of it, start to li create limits for the bottom end of the recovery, and just try to uh, get in congruence with your body's capacity to process that lactate rather than trying to rush the deal. Because if you right. try to rush the deal, you're going to lose every stinking time. And so and this is what people are doing. They're, they're pounding themselves into the ground, and they're hoping it's going to work one day. And it never does. Right. You, might, you might get incremental improvements in your capacity to, to, to take work, but there's going to be a limit to how much of it you can. You're not going to see massive improvements. You're not going to see the kind of outcome that I shared with you in this guy's thing. I mean, this guy is clearly, he's been at it for a while. It wasn't a new trick to right. go into CrossFit. You know, and he's, and he's educated. He's got a master's degree in sports science. He couldn't believe it. He, he didn't even understand how the mechanism would even would make sense. So would, he, would an individual, let's, I mean, maybe him as an example, like let's yeah. say you're using a ski erg yeah, and you're trying to better understand this relationship you have with your output. Uh, but let's say you're more on the novice level. So this is something that's new to you. Uh, when you change volume or intensity so we can adjust the the distance or, or the time that they're doing it, but we can also adjust the effort. The problem yeah. with adjusting effort is if someone's new to exercise, everything's hard. So how do you walk, well, you have how to do you walk them through it's, that? It's just got to be governed because if you're new to exercise, your capacity to produce work is going to be shunted. You know, right. your threshold is going to be lower and your, your, your uh, ability to take on or process that lactate is going to be l less educated. So you don't, you could do it intuitively, you could do it for, through perceptive effort if you wanted to, but it, it's better to have some data. So if I know that you start to go, you're, you're like 100% in your carbohydrate stores at, say, hypothetically 150 beats per minute, mm -hmm. we may not go there. We may go push up on like one, push up on like, you know, five beats below that. Yeah. And then, you know, keep pushing on that. Start so you're like touching it and back down, touching right. it and But back not down. coming all the way back down. You don't want right. to give yourself a break. You want you want to take a little bit of a gulp of air and get back in it. And then what you want to do too is that if if you feel the capacity to uh, exceed that that limiter, do it. And you'll start noticing that you're starting to push further and further in, and your fatigue is being shunted. You're starting to push your fatigue off, and then you're starting to need less recovery. And so you start finding yourself in this window where you're taking on more intensity than you could before. And you're recovering faster than you did before. I love and that. And that's what you want. So most people, they just like, they're looking at the clock or they're looking at, you know, their output. They're saying, you know, if my 500 meter time is, you know, I'm trying to get this. And so you're slamming yourself against it. And, you know, uh, conceptually, you fail more often than not. And then you're hoping that one day it's just going to turn out. And, you know, by hook or crook, whatever doesn't kill you can make you stronger. But it's just a, it's a harder path where... If you just got into a little bit more relationship with the intensity, your perception of what the effort is like, not get governed by a number or, or a scheme that somebody created for you, yes. but just start getting in there and rolling in and out of it and start noticing. So 
the metabolic transporters for lactate is unique. And based on the intensity of the work is also uh, a varying a metabolic transporter. So there's, there's a, and I want to go into a whole, you know, physiological discussion. I'm here, here but, for it. <laughs> no, but at the end of the day, there, you're, you're soliciting to a particular transport system. And it's based on the intensity and it's based on muscle structure. And the, the more dense the muscle is, the, the less capacity you have with one transporter versus the other. So you're going to start noticing that the timelines change based on intensity. But, um, I mean, again, read the book. <laughs> the yeah, book, no, I mean, I'm amongst other things. I'm going to book, book. The book speaks reams. Of, right. And, and, it, and it really, um, when I wrote the book, I didn't, what I didn't want to do, and I had done in the past, I wrote another book once upon a time called My Best Race. And it was just regurgitation of what most of other, other coaches would have said. Right. And and I didn't want to do that again. And then, so I have a, there's a template for a 5K, 10K, half marathon and a marathon. In the new And book. it just tells tells you step by step, day by day, what you need to do, right? And I, I just did not want to do that. What I yeah. wanted to do is teach people what they should expect from their body and how to get the most from their body. And then I did show some samples but I, every sample I show, you'll, if you read it, you'll see I said, this is just a sample. <laughs> this is right. not something for you to follow, you know, like it's scripture. It's, it's just showing you what it might look like. You need, to, you need to organize the work on your own accord, but understand what the, the important components are and the elements are and where they might be fashioned. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of this. I like it. It's a, to me, it sounds almost like the benefit of developing proprioception when you're trying to learn movements. Like if you know where your body is in space, you're going to be a better mover. If you can move better and more efficiently, you're going to become stronger. And if you become stronger, you open a lot of doors, but like this is, it's almost like proprioception for your cardiovascular system. Learning, what does it feel like to work at, at different levels? What does my body do? I'll, I'll tell you after talking to you, I'm, extremely inspired to buy a heart rate monitor and to buy your book and to honestly buy a concept rower because I've been very back and forth about having one, but I can see like so much application for it. Is a heart rate monitor the best way to start to get this data for yourself? Well, so it isn't a, it, well, yeah, I guess the answer is yes, because it isn't a function of what's happening in the moment. It's the it's the ability to collect the data and see it after the fact. Over time. Right. So, yeah. So what you want to see is the trends. And you want to see the cause and effect relationship with what you're doing. And so maybe one day, you know, you spend more time aerobic and less time anaerobic or whatever. And just see what the outcome looks like. What is the production doing? Are you able to sustain more, more pace, more effort, more intensity, you know, over time, or, or are you going down the wrong path? It's just, it's just when I when I coach athletes, I'm collecting all this data. I I, I have a uh, an athlete I work with. She's in Zimbabwe, Africa, and she's doing the Comrades Marathon this this weekend, which is a 90 kilometer road race. Wow. And uh, yeah, she had COVID three times going into this. She is killing it. She is absolutely killing it. This is going to be the re best race of her life. Uh, and she's, I think she's 45 years old now. Um, but she's just take. she just does what I tell her. And I can see it. I can see the outcome. 
I'm looking at stress factors. I'm looking at her pace. I'm looking at where she was, what the elevation gains were, what her heart rate response looked like, what her pace is doing. I'm seeing all this data. I'm the, she's in Africa, and I'm sitting here guiding her through an event because I can't, because the data is, is there for me. And, you know, I prescribe work. We talk. Prescribe work, we talk, I see the, see the outcomes, and I, I govern the work accordingly. But um, I, you can't do, so let's just say that you're training perceptively. Where does that information go? <laughs> you gotta, right, you yeah, put you, a, have to, you do need to be able to track it somewhere. <laughs> you're going to put a smiley face or face in a little book on the day it went <laughs> well. Oh my you know? God, it's so funny. When I was in high school, I was still skiing competitively, and I, would, I still wrote all my training sessions in composition notebooks. And one of the things that I did is each session I would write my perceived energy level pre and post. And years later, I reflect on that. It just felt so silly. Like in the moment, it, it actually ended up being a useful piece of data because I was doing it every single time I trained. But it was the, in essence, it was writing a smiley face or a different version of a smiley face on my notebook. And I always thought that was so funny. But when you do collect data on yourself and log it and keep it, you really do start to learn more about who you are and your thresholds because like the guy that's just starting for the first time, everything's hard. Right. Well, so I'll have people you... commonly, I'll have people that I coach. They'll ask me, how am I doing? I said, well, give me an hour and I'll call you back. And what I do is I go back and look through the data. So when I call them back, I could say, well, I'll tell you what, six months ago when you did this, versus what you did today, which was the same event, your production was greater, better, slower, faster. I, I give them, I give them the truth. I don't, yeah. I, I don't pat them on the back, you know, and oh, you're doing great. You're looking amazing. You know, chicks dig you, you know, I mean, I don't, I, I don't do that. I, you know, people think I'm a little harsh, but I'm like, you, you pay me to give you information. I'm trying to help you. And, and I, and I'm not going to lie to you. I'm just going to, if you if you suck, if you suck, I'm going to tell you why. And, and if you're doing great, I'm going to tell you why. And I'm not, I, I, I'm real quick to say, you know what? You're doing freaking fantastic. Look at this, man. And I'll show you why you're doing fantastic. I'm not going to just do it because, you know, I want to keep you on, on my my roster, right? Right. Well, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to return, you know, towards the end here to kind of where we started, actually, and I, I hate to just put a company on blast, but I have to know where you stand on this. And, and I've, uh -oh. I'm interested because I've heard you talk about it before, but I also just see this product out there all the time. And it throws me for such a loop. Hoka's. I knew you were going to say that. I, I just, I have to like, how many times am I going to get to ask Richard Diaz about Hoka's? Like, what the hell is going on oh, with man. this? How did uh, this happen? Uh, and like, What's yeah? What's up with these shoes? Why should why are people wearing them? Should we be wearing them? I think I know the answer to that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, you know what's interesting is that here I am, a guy that for the past over a decade been traveling all over the country. Uh, I looked at it. I think I've been in uh, twelve different states, and some of them I've visited probably uh, multiple times, two three times, doing clinics on demand. They're they're calling me. I'm not just showing up. They're calling me and asking me what I right. come. And I'm looking at people running, and I'm helping people try to improve upon the way they move. And they always want to ask me, well, what shoe should I wear? And I don't 
ever recommend a particular brand. And here's the problem is I don't trust the manufacturers of running shoes at large. Their, their game is to develop a product that you will buy. And whatever shtick they can create to get you excited and get you to get off of the other product, that's their game, right? So going, we talked about Born to Run. So back in the day when, when Chris McDougall wrote that book about the Taramahara Indians running in little sandals or barefoot, and the folly of trying to run with a shoe with an elevated heel. Um, ever since then, people, it just made so much sense, right? And so then they started running in Vibram Five Fingers. That was a big deal for a long time. That company went bonkers from, from just a little um, boat shoe to incredibly successful running shoe, you know, overnight. And then... People were kind of torn. They're like, okay, we'll go this way, and then we go that way. And then so um, then everybody started talking about, well, you need a broader toe box because you want your shoe, your, your, you want to land your forefoot. We've all agreed on that now. So we need to give us some room. So we need a broader toe box, right? And we don't want to be on that ledge because that changes our uh, point of balance. It puts us way in front of us. So um, looking for a unique marketing position, and I don't know who it was, and so I really can't cast dispersion on any individual. But Hoka collectively decided, well, let's keep zero drop because everybody says that's the thing to do. That makes sense. That's selling. But let's put a cushion under there to protect them from the ground, right? <laughs> so they started going after some big-ass stack height, right? Well, so from a physiological perspective, the more afferent feedback you can get from the ground, the better you are off in respect to being proactive about the activity. Your body knows what to do because it's getting good information. The further from the ground you get, the more that information is dampened. Okay? So, and, and I can give you a thousand other reasons why a big stack height is not a great idea. So, Hoka used to be exclusively about that. Recently, in the last couple years, they released a couple shoes that were not with the big stack height and were, you know, more in keeping with what I thought was an intelligent design. So I have been shy of saying Hoka, you know, the Black Death. I'm not, right. I don't throw them collectively as, as a company under the bus anymore. And partially because some of these other companies that were losing ground to Hoka started following suit. So used to be that Ultra was all about the correct... I used to sell the shoe. I'm still a dealer for Ultra. Yeah. Ultra made an amazing shoe in the early days. And those guys were all about protect your feet, broad toe box, zero drop, that's all you need. I'm like, I'm in, right? right. And then they started making bigger stack height, softer cushion, started talking about motion control, and all that bullshit that they, they sell you in a store, right? And guess what? Topo Athletic, another company that same... Followed uh, ultra conceptually, same drill, you know, broad toe box, zero drop, you know, firm sole. What, now they started putting cushions underneath it. The Nike started throwing bigger cushions. Then they put some fancy cushions underneath it. So collectively across the board, they're, they're all screwing the pooch. And they're chasing the dollar, right? right? They find that people are dumb. And if you tell them something's cozy, comfortable, 
they're going to go get it, right? right? And that's what happened. So now I've had, I'll give you a, a real quick story, and I don't want to belabor this. We're going to get this done soon, I guess. I have a client in Singapore. Uh, no, I'm sorry. He's in Taiwan. I had a client in Singapore too, but this guy's in Taiwan. Marathon runner, right? And all kinds of trouble, quit running outside, was convinced that pavement was killing him. That's why he was having so much trouble. Started running exclusively on a treadmill in the house. Blah, 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 blah. I, I pulled him off the ceiling. I, I cleaned up the way he was moving. And I told him to buy a particular shoe from Ultra that had all the nuances that I was interested in and I thought would benefit him. He started really crushing it. We we're training for a marathon. And uh, one day I get on the uh, the video chat with him and he told me that he's got a black toenail. His, his big toe is just crushed and he can't walk and went to see the doctor and the doctor said just well just leave it alone and you know after a couple weeks you know it'll take care of itself. I said no dude. I told him to slide a pin underneath the front of his nail and, and rupture that that you know that edema that's in there and squeeze it all out and tape it down. And then I said, what happened? Why did you should never have got this problem? He said, well, I don't know. I, I said, did you change your shoes? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, I bought a new pair, but I got another pair of Ultras. Well, guess what? He got the Ultras with the big, cushy, blah, blah, blah. And he just, and I said, he goes, well, you told me to buy Ultras. I said, dude, I did not tell you to buy that stupid thing. I said, put your old shoes back on and go back out there after you squeeze the junk out. I talked to him the next week. He was running again and everything was cozy, right? So it's an easy buy for people, I think, because of the comfort part. Like they, yeah. they're like, "Well, I run on pavement." Right. Your run out, your your knees and your hips are jacked up because mechanically you're inefficient, not because you run on pavement. It's not the shoe. It's not the surface. Right. It's the way you land. Yes. And, and I, I think I did a, a five tips on my YouTube channel, yeah. and the very first one I say is stick the landing. Just like a gymnast, like you that. want to stick the landing. You want to make sure every time that foot makes contact with the ground, it's in the right place. Yeah. It's and, and at the right frequency. And your posture is where it belongs. Stick the landing. And and then you know what? You can I can wear almost any I'm I'm gonna be 70 years old this year, okay? I can wear any shoe I want to. And I won't be troubled by the shoe. I mean, I take it back. I would I could probably put a shoe on that I would hate. Right. You know? <laughs> And it would probably hurt my back or something down the road. But ultimately, it's not about the way I move. Excuse me, it's not the shoe I wear. It's about the way I move. Right. And so, you know, and I've, I've had spinal cord surgery back in the day. And for, it was congenital. It wasn't about the way I move. But I've been able to run without any pain in my back, you know, 25 years later. Right. And, um, and I've run marathons and I screwed that up badly early in the days, didn't know better. And, and I just, I've just come to a place where I, I tell people, find a shoe that protects your foot, yes. that doesn't influence your natural functionality. Let your foot do what your foot's supposed to do and protect it while you do it. That's all you want to do. You don't want to have any influence, positive or negative, in respect to being delivered by that shoe. And then learn to roll in that shoe. Now, some people need to do some preparatory things to develop the strength, range of motion, things like this, so that they're able to do the right thing with the way they run. And again, this, I could spend another six hours talking about that, but we don't have time for that. 
Well, well, I mean, we'll have to do another episode on this stuff because as I've found, a lot of times the surface gets scratched on a bunch of different things because it's exciting to talk about each of which. Especially talking to me, right? Yeah, each of which we can delve into, uh, you know, in earnest. Um, It was the reason I brought up the flow thing, I remembered to to go back to that is, uh, one, I just love that concept. I'm very excited to read this book and actually dive into some of the nuances here. But in in jiu-jitsu in training there's flow rolling and flow rolling is more just like going through the positions and responding to actions that are placed against you because you're always you know you're always responding to your opponent in some way and one of the things that is very true to what you're saying is that you have to be ready to respond within the time frame of the match to whatever the effort is that's being placed against you because if you don't respond to it your guard's going to get passed they're going to get points you're going to get submitted and so this unknown ability to constantly respond at max effort at various parts that you'll never be able to predict is so crucial to the flow of an actual role. And I really like that concept. And, and I'm excited to actually take that into my separate, maybe even in a strength training realm of going unpredicted on the intensities throughout the workout to take advantage of that unpredictable nature but this this concept of flowing through those intensities and touching the different heart rates and raising that floor uh it sounds really cool we're going to link the book in the show notes and everything to for that so that people can get access to it um but richard thank you so much i really do feel like we're on the very tip of the iceberg we're gonna have to do this again because we're gonna we can nerd out very deeply on a bunch of different stuff you know, just maybe just we'll get an tip, athlete on here with us too just on a tip on uh interviewing guests you get an old yeah. man they got all kinds of stuff to talk about right <laughs> right you got I love it if you that's why i don't put tight, a time limit on it you want to keep it tight you're gonna have to get younger people on your show <laughs> Awesome. Well, Richard, it's it's honestly been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time, your knowledge, your insights. Um, I'll, again, link the, sh- the book and everything there so people can get access to it or check out uh, Richard's OCR clinics. That'll be a link also. So awesome. we'll do this again in the future. All right, man. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much.